episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Mezaida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, Monthly co-host Cap Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. And this episode is sponsored by Tarot by, Gin- by Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you will find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Delphi Ellis. She has a book called Answers in the Dark. Grief, sleep, and how dreams can help you heal. Thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I read a little bit about your background. Um, It looks like you had started out as a counselor for grief and suicide. Mm -hmm. I mean, that in itself is really tough. I mean, that has to be maybe one of the toughest things to counsel people on. What got you interested in that subject? It's a really interesting question because it kind of just happened. I decided fairly um, sort of midlife that I wanted to change careers and I decided to look into becoming a counsellor. And it just so happened that the majority of people that I started to work with had been bereaved by actually murder as well as suicide. So the people that I was working with would often have um, those experiences, sometimes both. You know, sometimes people I'd worked with had been bereaved by both murder and suicide. Mm-hmm. And although that wasn't the direction that I originally anticipated, that was the journey that I went on. And so over the last 20 years, I've worked with people in that have navigated those awful life experiences and, and how they've shown up for people. So, yeah, it's it wasn't something that I, I thought that I would do. It wasn't something that I set out to do. It was something that became part of the journey. And it was it was interesting, actually, because when I started to talk to people about their experiences, this was what particularly kind of got me into this work about, as I call it, helping people get their sparkle back. Because when the time was right for them, that was what people wanted. They wanted to be able to find their way forward. So that's really how my work started, was just helping people find their way through these difficult times and doing that in such a way that they felt would help them get their sparkle back. So with that, you know, like I have experienced grief and I've had friends commit suicide and stuff like that. And... um, you know, I don't know if I've ever completely came back, or not came back, but but completely felt a complete resolve or an acceptance with those type of situations because they yeah. are so pr- profoundly confusing. You know, because mm-hmm. like on one side, you, you can understand why a person does what they did. And then on the other hand, it's like, 
you can't understand. So, so it's like it becomes a war within my own mind of, of trying to resolve that kind of conflict. How? how? How do you get a person to even resolve those? Like, I know I can't be the only person to have those two opposite sides warring against each other. Like, like how do no, you absolutely. get that to, to um, come to some type of conclusion? Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And you're right, you're, you're not alone in that. And so one of the things um, that I talk about in Answers in the Dark in my book is exactly what you've just described is, is the fact that people, in my experience, and I've worked with hundreds of people over the last 20 years, and what they say to me is that you don't find your way, um, uh, you don't get over the experience, you find your way forward. So you learn to navigate life without that person in it. But at the same time, you hold a space for them in your heart. And I think for for many of the people, if not all of the people I've worked with, they would all agree that you don't kind of get over in inverted commas, you don't get over grief. It's something that remains with you. And in some ways, it will take shape in the form of the dreams that we have. And sometimes it will be because we can't sleep at night because we're thinking about that person and I think with suicide particularly I think it's it is one of those things and I talk about this in the book is that it does help to understand that that person was in such profound pain and you know often we can almost reconcile in our minds why they did what they did but we're still not okay with it, which is, I think, what you're saying, you know, is is we can kind of reconcile in our minds that we understand how that person had kind of reached that place in their own minds, but at the same time, we're not okay with the fact that they're no longer here. And I think that's where, again, it is about helping people find their way forward to a place of where they can learn to navigate life without the physical presence of that person, but they can also stay connected in their own way, whatever that looks like to the person that they've loved and lost. So it, it may well be through something as straightforward as a memory box, you know, where they have a collection of things that they treasured that were there for them um, and, and that they use when they want to feel connected to that person. In other ways and in other cultures, it's about storytelling. You know, it's about telling stories about that person and the memories and the times that you spent together. So I think it's important that we acknowledge that. You know, I think it's important. I, I talk about it in Answers in the Dark where I say that if we're not given permission to talk about our grief experiences, and let's be clear, when we talk about our grief experiences, we're not just talking about death either. You know, if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that grief doesn't just belong to death. It can belong to anything that matters to us that's no longer there. You know, a relationship breakdown, even a child leaving home to go to college or university can count as a loss and so one of the things I talk about is that if as a society we don't give people permission to talk about their losses then it will go underground and and that's often where again it shows up in our dreams or it shows up in you know at four in the morning I've got a whole chapter called the 4am mystery where it shows up at four in the morning and we can't sleep so yeah, it's 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 something I think is important that as a society, I think we need to talk about, especially in the West, you know, and certainly in Eastern cultures, there's and in other cultures around the world, there's 
there's definitely ways of processing our grief that's healthy. Um, but certainly in some Western culture, you know, we we haven't quite got there yet. You know, we still find subjects like death and dying a real taboo. Hmm. So before we jump into the dream stuff, which um, I have two other questions. Um, one is when it comes to suicide, uh, I, I I think like like everybody because we or when when you're processing that conflict, you're trying to get into that other person's head who commits the suicide, and all of a sudden you realize like maybe they were right. What if that person made the right decision? And then you start thinking like, well, my own life is nothing but pain. And then you start mm-hmm. idealizing it yourself and considering mm-hmm. the idea of suicide. Does that, I mean, one of the things that I know about suicide is it's almost like a, it's contagious in a way. And I think it's contagious because people try to understand it. And the deeper they go into that other people's thought process, it starts making sense to the person that's trying to process the suicide. And then they do it themselves. Is that what is happening? Yeah, so I think, and again, I don't know what the research is like in the States, but I'm sure that in the UK we've done some research which identified that certainly in certain families where there had been an experience where someone had taken their own life, um, that there was the possibility that additional family members may may decide that, that that's their option, you know, that that's their only option to take their own life. Um, and there is something called the Werner effect, which is pretty much what you decide, it's what you just described, where it's almost like a a copycat effect or a, a contagious um, element to it, it, to use that language that you just used. Um, but I think it's important to remember in this conversation that when people are in those places, they're not okay. Um, and so I think that's where we can start to have those conversations with people about what is healthy for them right now and thinking about what um, might be available to them in terms of support because often in my experience when people are thinking about suicide when they're having what we call suicidal ideation it's when um, a person is in so much pain that they can't consider other options you know their their brain has kind of got into that place of they're looking for an out they're looking for an exit And that's where we as a society need to get better at having conversations with people when they're not okay. You know, we need to get better uh, conversations with people when they're struggling instead of what we tend to do, which is we tend to try and silver line the situation or we try to cheer them up or we try to say to them, oh, you know, everything's going to be okay. You just need to. And actually that can cause a person to feel even less heard You know, they can feel even less understood in those moments when we go into fixing mode. And so I think that's, I talk about it in Answers in the Dark, I talk about it as the fixing reflex, you know, that as humans, we are naturally wired to be solution focused. You know, we're naturally wired to to try and solve people's problems. And yet that's not always the most appropriate thing for us to do when a person is in such intense pain. Sometimes the most helpful thing we can do with someone is to say, I'm here, I'm here for you, I'm listening. Um, You know, I don't understand necessarily what you're going through right now, but I want you to know that I'm here and we have options, you know, and we can work through this together. I think when a person is in such a place where they feel that they have no options, 
um, you know, that's when it can be really difficult. And certainly in the UK, you know, we have measures that we take um, where we will make sure that a person is safe. We have safeguarding procedures where we will make sure somebody is safe if we're worried about them from that perspective, you know, if they've got to that really intense place. But I think um, it's our inability to have conversations about the tricky stuff. You know, it's our inability to have meaningful conversations where we can say to people to almost like get comfortable with people being uncomfortable or to get comfortable with others' discomfort. You know, so when someone's telling us that their life is just going down the toilet, you know, when they just feel like there are no other options for them, we as a society, I think, and I'm generalizing when I say this and I know that, um, but I think we as a society, we certainly need to get more comfortable with being around people when they're not okay and saying to them, you know, let's, I'm here for you, I'm listening, but without trying to sort of make it better in that moment, you know, just letting them feel heard, almost like being a container, a safe space for that person to talk about how they feel without anyone coming along and saying, I know what you need, because I think it's in those moments it can get really unhelpful. So, you know, when you're talking about, you know, people like, you know, communicating, you know, their feelings and, and doing, you know, that. Um, one of the things that I find is, um, yeah, there, there is that fix. Oh, just have some tea or some coffee or whatever, and you'll feel better about it. But another, you know, and that kind of like dismisses the pain, I think. It's, it's very dismissing. And, mm-hmm. and what, but, what, but what that makes me think of is, the, also is, um, the people that there's a lot of people that actually just want to dismiss it anyway. Like they don't want to hear it because they're like, mm-hmm. well, this is negative. I don't yeah. want this in my life. So go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly how people receive it. You know, when I've spoken to people, they'll, they'll say that, you know, when we say things to people like, Oh, there's people worse off than you. You have so much to be grateful for. When people say things like that to other people, it's said often with good intentions, but what the person actually hears is stop talking. I don't want to hear your pain. And that's what the person, that's what they tell me. They hear when, you know, their friends or their family say to them. Oh, or or that's what out. they're really saying. Yeah, Maybe yeah, they really don't want to hear it, you know, like, yeah. like, I don't want you to bring me down. Yeah. And, and I think that's where it's, it's good to have conversations about what toxic positivity looks like. You know, when we talk about toxic positivity, for many people, it's really helpful to have things like good vibes only. You know, for them, it's, that's a really important mantra for them. You know, they want to make sure that they're around people who are good for them, who are, um, healthy for them, who lift them up. They don't bring them down. And that's good. And I, I'm going to advocate that we should have good connection. We need good people around us. The challenge with that is when we then move into that space where we're basically saying, and I don't want to hear anybody else's pain, you know, in order for me to maintain my safe space, um, I, I don't want anything around me that, that kind of even feels a little bit like, uh, you know, negative in any way, shape or form. And I think we have to be aware again, of how that's received by others. Not that it's a bad thing. Again, you know, there may be good reason why we need to have good vibes only at the moment, especially if we're going through a difficult time. We may need to reduce the amount of negativity. And especially if we've got friends or family members who don't get it, you know, if we've got friends and family members who are just not helpful, then yeah, absolutely. We might need people around us who are positive. But I think when we talk about toxic positivity, what we're saying then is, it's almost like saying the only space I have 
is for good emotions in inverted commas. And actually all emotions are valid because they have their own intelligence. All emotions are trying to tell us something. It's just that our expressions of those emotions can cause us problems. It's the expression of, you know, anger, for example, when it shows up as aggression, that's how it gets difficult. That's how we can find ourselves in trouble or other people in trouble. But when we're saying to other people, I've only got space for positive emotions, we're basically saying that anything else is bad, you know, and how will that show up for that person if they then start to think that what they're feeling is bad, you know, when actually what they're feeling might be natural, it might be healthy, it might be important, it might be telling them something they really need to know. So I think, yeah, I think we have to be really careful about, you know, that that whole thing about good vibes only. I get it. I think, as I say, um, and that's no shade to people that use that. You know, if people use the good vibes only mantra because it helps them feel safe, then I think that's important. But I think we have to be aware of how that can turn toxic very quickly if we're basically only saying to people, I don't talk to you unless you're happy mm-hmm. and smiling. <laughs> so. How 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 did you go now from 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 this you know all, you know working with grief and, and and homicide and things like that and incorporate into like dreams you know, you know like, like looking at people's dreams which is kind of you know youngy youngian or I can't never pronounce his name you know young or young um I don't know how it's pronounced but you know it, into that type of um, viewpoint and how does it help so um this is one of the reasons why the the subtitle to my book is grief sleep and how dreams can help you heal and so i think it's a good question because i actually grew up in an environment where we talked about dreams over the breakfast table so it was really natural for me to bring that into my work you know often when people were bereaved they wanted to talk to me and especially after suicide some of the dreams that show up after a suicide can be really cruel and really intense for the dreamer and so often they would come up for people and we would explore that and how dreams are a form of nighttime therapy but I essentially grow up in an environment where we were we would talk about the dreams we had the night before. And it's really interesting that you mentioned Carl Jung, because so often when when I talk to people about their dreams, they will look at it from one of those perspectives, either Carl Jung or Sigmund Freud, um, depending on their discipline. Uh, you know, with, if they're working in a therapeutic setting, you know, they might bring um, others like Alfred Adler into the conversation and, and people like that. But it's really interesting because, of course, we've been analysing dreams for thousands of years. I mean, literally thousands of years. I talk about this in Answers in the Dark, that um, the Chester Beatty papyrus, when it was found, I think it was in the 1930s, um, it was dated, this piece of papyrus, which was basically a dream dictionary um, mm. in its in its basic, most basic form. It was a dream dictionary that dated back like 2000 years so it's so interesting when we talk about dreams, we instantly fall into this trap of westernizing it. You know, we fall into this trap of westernizing it and saying, oh, let's talk about Carl Jung or let's talk about Sigmund Freud, which is what, 100 years plus. Um, and yet we've been exploring dreams for thousands of years. And this is one reason why I talk about this is that I think when we're exploring dreams, we have to look at the big picture. If we only apply one way of working with our dreams, like Carl Jung or like Sigmund Freud, then we're only getting one bite of the apple. It's really important when we think about our dreams and the context of our dreams 
that we're looking at the big picture and, and what else it might be able to tell us, especially if we take into account our own culture, our own tradition, you know, our own symbolism and, and how that shows up. So, yeah, I've I've been analysing and exploring dreams um, since I was a little girl, really. I, I mean, I woke up in a really unusual environment. I, I was brought up in a really unusual environment. So um, certainly in England, it's not normal for, uh, you know, a child to come home and find her mum reading the tarot or, you know, that's not an everyday experience or... Um, you know, I remember my mum vividly using the I Ching, which is a form of divination tool. It's a, it's these lovely coins that I'm sure you mm-hmm. know about. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would say most people, not to say that that doesn't happen in other households, I'm sure it does. Um, but certainly when I went into the playground, you know, as a little girl, and I'm talking about the dreams that I'd had or, you know, my mum's I Ching. I would often be met with these looks of what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, so for me, um, it was quite a unique upbringing. And I think, um, but in a way, I think that has informed the work that I do today. You know, so when people talk to me about their dreams, I work at it very much from the perspective of an exploration. I'm not here to tell anybody that their dream means this or it means that. I work with people as an exploration. So, I, you know, I ask a lot of open questions. What might that mean for you? What does that symbolism mean for you? Rather than trying to, to pin it down. And this is why I was careful to say that Answers in the Dark is not a dream dictionary. I offer some insights on what some dreams might mean, especially death dreams, especially anxiety dreams, because they're so common. You know, these are dreams that come up for a lot of people. Um, So I do offer some insights on when I've been talking to people over the years, what they've interpreted them as. But um, ultimately, I think the best person to decide what their dream means is the person who had it. That's, That's where I come from. So what is a dream exactly? So I I think of dreams like a friend and I'm sure you've got friends that you listen to what they say, you take on board the advice that they give you. And I'm sure you've also got other friends that maybe you take what they say with a pinch of salt. You know, maybe you don't kind of listen to everything they have to say or you kind of maybe park it for another day. And for me, that's what dreams are like. Dreams are like a friend. They're offering you some insight but they are deliberately encrypted so that only you can understand them. You have within you your own, if I think of it like the Enigma machine, you know, you have within you your own personal decoding device, which will help you understand and explore them. And I offer tips on how to do that in the book, but it's um, it really is a kind of a personal exploration. That's not to say that other people can't help. You know, it is important to if you're going through difficulties like we were describing earlier, you know, it is important that people reach out for help when they need it. Um, but I think it's uh, it's really important that we recognize that these dreams are encoded so that only we can explore and understand them. And that's that's one of the beauties of it. You know, you could walk into work tomorrow and say, oh, I had a really weird dream last night. And people could offer you their thoughts on what it might mean. But ultimately, only you will know if that makes sense or not. Only you will know if that resonates or not. So I think, yeah, I think a dream is is like a, a friend, but it's also like a gift. You know, it, it's essentially, it's an opportunity for you to consider 
um, you know, as a resource that it might be answering some problems, it might be answering questions, it might be telling you that you're worrying about something, or it might be pointing you towards something in your life that might need your attention. But I think it's also important to say that dreams are so much more than that. You know, um, when I say they're like a gift, if I think about, um, you know, famous people who have used their dreams throughout lifetimes um, as uh, to influence their work. Um, you know, Stephanie Mayer was said to have dreamt the story of Bella and Edward, the Twilight Saga. Um, you know, she was said to have dreamt that story. Um, Keith Richards apparently dreamt the rift to I can't get no satisfaction. So we can't just kind of put dreams into that category of just the subconscious rattling of the mind or it's just spewing, you know, um, random wisdom, you know, or anything like that. I think we can apply it across the board and look at dreams as a gift in so many different ways, either as the answers to our problems or as, you know, offering us an opportunity, a resource that we could maybe look at and explore. So to me, it sounds like that you think dreams are more than um, neural transmitters firing off in our sleep, trying to make new neural pathways to solve problems. Um, mm. If they are more than that, okay, if they are some outside form of consciousness sending us information to a brain that might possibly be a receiver, mm. um, I is is that part of what you think dreams are? And if so, where are these things being transmitted from? It's such a good question. And I, I love questions like this because I think, again, this is one of the reasons why I was really careful in Answers in the Dark to say, I know that there will be some scientific researchers who don't like the way I've approached the book because they will want me to say, this part of your brain is responsible for dreaming and this is where your dreams come from and, and you know, those kinds of things. And I've, I guess the way I've approached it is I've offered food for thought. I think of it very much as starting a conversation, much as the way we're having now and asking these big questions, but without necessarily feeling like we've got all the answers. And I think for me, we've only really been scratching the surface of dreams and sleep, scientifically speaking, for about 100 years. That's nothing, you know, that's a sneeze in time. And but when you think about the fact that throughout history, cultures have used dreams as a divine portal, you know, a divine doorway mm -hmm. to speak to their ancestors, or you think about the fact that they will often encourage wisdom about health, wealth and happiness, depending on the culture that you live in or, or the tradition that you've grown up with. So I think, like I said earlier, we have to be careful not to westernize the subject. I think we have to be careful not to. Um, and again, that's not to say that obviously science doesn't happen in the East. It does. Um, it's more about the way that, you know, traditionally and culturally we talk about dreams. We have to be careful that we don't we don't fall into the trap of saying this is what it is. I think we do have to keep the conversation open. And I say this particularly when I think about things like predictive dreams, you know, where a person has had a dream which then came true. And I, I think that's one of the reasons where we can, yes, to some extent, we can say, well, you know, maybe that's the brain picking up on some signals about what might happen and what might not happen. That's one way of looking at it. 
But we could also look at it from the perspective of those cultures in the world that think this is a divine doorway. This is someone, an ancestor, potentially giving us some information that might help with our health, wealth in the future. So it's it's I guess what I'm saying is it is that I think we we just don't know enough yet about this as a subject to be able to categorically say this is what it is. Yes, we might be able to identify, you know, um, and even this changes over time, you know, the parts of the brain that that might produce our dreams. Mm-hmm. But does that mean that, you know, we are um, that's the only place that they're coming from? I think we need to keep an open mind. I think certainly I've spoken to enough people. Visitation dreams is another example of this where a a deceased loved one has come to a person in a dream and they have imparted some wisdom or knowledge to that dreamer that has been hugely profound. You know, it has given that dreamer a sense of peace. It's given that dreamer a sense of reconciliation, um, you know, any number of things. So I think I do think it's important. And that's why I separate dreams into, like I was saying earlier, this there is there are dreams which are a form of nighttime therapy, which is helping us work through stuff like bereavement. But there is also other types of dreaming that we have, which I think we don't know enough about yet to say categorically that's the only answer. I think we need to be looking at all the answers in the dark. Do you think that maybe we're living in a dream? (laughs) It's one of the reasons I love the movie The Matrix because it is just that whole concept, isn't it, that it's possible that um, we're actually just part of some bigger machine or we're part of some bigger connection um, and again, I think it's it's just so wonderful to keep an open mind and consider the possibilities of that. Um, I love the fact that in the Matrix, Morpheus is called Morpheus because Morpheus, of course, was the god of dreams. And so it's it's so if you think about it, the Matrix is all about dreams. It's all about dreaming. And um, that's one of the reasons why when when Neo gets hooked up to those machines, um, his eyes move backwards and forwards quickly and just as they do when we're dreaming just as we do when we're going through rapid eye movement that's mm-hmm. what it's called so it's it's fascinating isn't it to to consider that as a possibility that we're living in a dream world and actually you know what some people I speak to say to me I'd much rather be asleep and dreaming because this world right now is just too scary or you know or this world right now is just too abrasive so I get it you know I, I get it why you know for some people the dream world is is another adventure and I'm certainly an advocate of that. You know, I'm certainly an advocate of looking at how we can use our dreams helpfully, but without staying there for too long. Hmm. So, um, if we don't know what dreams are, and we don't know if this reality that we're in is or is not a dream, then what is the point of even analyzing all this and trying to figure it out and trying to heal ourselves to begin with if none of it is real? Isn't that part of the adventure, though? You know, this is one of the things when we think about Buddhism, for example, you know, one of the one of the things the Buddha said was we get so caught up in these big life questions. And all the while we're asking these big life questions, we're missing life. We're not living it. You know, we get so absorbed in some of these kind of questions that we seek the answers for. And that's not to say that we shouldn't try. You know, that's not to say that we shouldn't consider 
what questions need answering and what don't. Um, but I think part of the adventure is figuring out, you know, what what questions matter, what questions are important. Um, and, you know, if we are living in a dream world, if this is how it is anyway, then how are we making the best of it? You know, are we making the most of our opportunities? Are we, you know, um, giving everything to, to what we've got? You know, those kinds of things. So I think it's it's an interesting kind of perspective to think of it from the the option of if we're living in a dream world, how do we make the best of it? You know, how do we use this life helpfully, especially if it's the only one we've got, you know, depending again on our belief systems, whether you believe in reincarnation or not, you know, it's it's still helpful to think about it from the one life perspective so that you can think about if I'm go if I've got this life, then what can I do with it in a way that's meaningful? You know, what can I do in a way? And that's one of the reasons why so many people, including myself, look at this life as a, a life of service. You know, it's in service to other people rather than making it about me and what I need or what I want. Um, I live it in a life of service to others and thinking about how if I'm here for however long I'm here, can I make this life a useful one? Can I use it in the sense that it's going to help at least make the world a little bit better than it feels for many people right now? But it's a fascinating concept. It's, it's one that I'm always kind of, um, you know, I'm interested to hear people's perspectives on it. Hmm. So I'm going to be a little brash here. Like, not everybody, like, I, I hear, like, the, you know, I get this answer a lot, you know, um, that, that people will give their life meaning by being of service to others. You know, it's a mm -hmm. really, really a very common solution to this big problem of, you know, life is just meaningless. So I'm going to help other people to give it meaning. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has that capacity one to do that. And then there's people like me that are even maybe skeptical of, of that type of thinking. Cause it's like, yeah, it's just another justification to another way of justifying and making living in duality, which is most of the time, or a lot of time, miserable, okay. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think this is where, again, it's, it's, again, it's about that interesting perspective, isn't it, about how we can approach these conversations differently. And also thinking about the kind of the lives that we live and the way that we want to live them. But I do think, um, again, if we think about it from, um, I'm thinking of Coot Blackson. He came up with a really interesting quote where he talked on. about, oh, have you? Yeah. Oh, amazing. I didn't, I didn't spot that, but where he said things like we need to give up the illusion of control. Um, I think that was, it was one of the most profound things I heard him say was giving up the illusion of control. You know, if the pandemic taught us anything, aside from the fact that grief doesn't just belong to death, um, it talked about the, he talked about the illusion of control and, and how the pandemic taught us that we actually don't have as much control over things as we want, but we try to control everything. We try to control other people. We try to control their responses, what they think of us, how we behave. And actually all I can do is be me in the same way as you can do you all I can do is be me and so if that for me gives me a sense of meaning and purpose to live a life of service then 
that's good you know that's that's kind of how um you know we can approach that that from that perspective but at the same time as Coot said you know thinking about what is life trying to express through me when he talks about meaning and purpose he talked about what is life trying to express through me um and again that's about playing to our gifts our strengths our skills um, and again, how we can make those useful. It doesn't mean it's right for everyone. It doesn't mean that that's the best way. But if we're not hurting people in those kind of situations, then I think it's okay. I think it's okay for you to you do you, and uh, and it's okay for me to do me. Everything we do affects somebody else. Yeah. You know, there's there's no way around that. What we do affects other people. Sometimes positive, sometimes negative. Because we're, we're, yeah. we're connected very closely to each other. We rely on each other. We're not going to, most people are not going to survive alone. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, I don't know. For me, I, like, with that in mind, like, if I cannot survive alone and um, one of the things, like you said, like like Coot, this is one of the issues I had with Coot actually, is that whole thing about um, purpose, you know, and I and I disagreed with him because we are responsible for manifesting our own reality, at least to a certain extent. If our thoughts mm-hmm. are our realities, like like like, it's, if, it's how we're processing information that's giving with us to us that's creating the reality so therefore to a large extent i am responsible for the reality that i'm living in because i'm the one that's processing it yeah so just sitting back and being like okay this is it i can't do anything about it so i'm just along for the ride and i'm going to enjoy it in some way it seems to be a cop-out it's a cop-out because not only am I responsible for my own reality, like I said, we're all interconnected with each other. Yeah. So therefore, we're responsible not just for my own reality, but I'm responsible for the reality of other people. Mm-hmm. So maybe the better thing to do would be to get to 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 get a group of people together to decide on what kind of reality they want to create. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens already. I think there are groups of people that, you know, um, I mean, if we think about, if we get, you know, just for a moment, get political for a moment, but isn't that what governments do? You know, aren't they deciding what the reality is like for all of us to some extent? You know, I think when they're, they're in just power? thieves. <laughs> but you know where I'm going with this? It's like, I think, I think it is up to us. I think you're absolutely right. I think it is up to us to be conscious and mindful of the realities that we are creating for ourselves and how that impacts others. But I also think we have to be careful um, about expressing that from the active or the passive perspective. So you, what you described a minute ago, where people are passive, where they're just going to sit back and they're going to let life happen to them. That's the completely different reality from someone who is actively participating, who is willing to change, who is willing to listen, who is willing to engage in conversations and dialogue to help make meaningful change for others. Because the danger otherwise, right, is that we're just going to stay in our comfort zone. We're just going to stay in our bubbles. And don't get me wrong, for some people, those bubbles are safe places. You know, don't get me wrong, for some people, they create those comfort zones for a reason. because that enables them to stay safe in a world that they feel is and see as inherently safe. Right. But then, but the, another way that bubble's going to pop, and yeah. and because you spend so much time in that bubble, they're not going to have the 
um, the toughness to survive. Yeah. And again, you know, when we think about toughness, it's again, it's important. I have this whole conversation with people about resilience and how, you know, when we talk about toughness and resilience, that's another myth. Because when we talk about resilience, certainly, I mean, again, I'm, I'm talking from this from, from the kind of British perspective, but when we talk about resilience over here, most people buy into the myth that resilience and toughness is about keeping going no matter what, right? It's just kind of just persevering and, and, and that kind of thing. That's endurance. That's not the same as resilience. Sometimes resilience is the vulnerability to be able to say to someone, I'm not okay. Sometimes resilience is being able to reach out to a connection and say, I'm struggling. Um, you know, it is very much about that courage and how we show up in conversations. And again, going back to what I was saying earlier about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, it's about kind of having those um, those ideas about what does it mean to be tough? And I think, um, but you're right, you know, when you said about if eventually that bubble is going to burst, you know, eventually for that person, the bubble is going to burst and, and it may well be that they, they get the shock of their lives when they realize that life isn't just like that for them. And so that's again where, you know, being aware of that is important. It is aware, you're right when you say it's important for us to be aware of our impact on others. Um, because otherwise we're moving into really, you know, kind of tricky spaces where it's we're moving into that. It's my way or no way. You know, we're moving into that space where it becomes unhealthy. That's interesting. I've never thought about the difference between resilience and endurance, because I was certainly taught that endurance meant resilience, which meant uh -huh. survival. And that's how you uh -huh. go through life. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's, like, so tell me a yeah. little bit more about resilience. Like, how can we switch from going in endurance, which really is like a fight mode all the time, really, for me anyway, to yeah, resilience where it sounds like it's more dynamic? Yeah, resilience is a skill. So when we talk about resilience, the same as empathy, empathy is a skill. It can be cultivated and it can be grown over time. We will find that there are some situations where we're more resilient. So you might be more resilient at home than you are at work or you might be more resilient at work than you are at home. Um, and so I think it helps to understand that. I think it helps to understand that it is not a trait. You are not either resilient or not you will find that your resilience changes over time. You're certainly your capacity to cope changes over time. In the same way, as I say, empathy is a skill. You know, it's something that we learn and can cultivate rather than seeing it as we're either this or we're not. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, um, it's it's true that we we kind of get tricked into this idea that resilience is keep going no matter what, um, you know, keep pushing through, don't let people know that you're not okay, just put on a brave face, um, you know, those kinds of things. And actually, for me, resilience is a combination of things. Resilience is about knowing when I'm not okay and being able to reset and start again, you know, figuring out what works for me and what doesn't. Um, it's also about connection. When you talked about interconnectedness earlier, it's very much about having those connections around you, people that lift you up, that understand you, that get you, um, rather than being around people who are just negative and drain you. And like I was saying earlier, we have to pick our moments. There will always be people that we have to spend time with at work, for example, you know, that might drain us to some extent. And when I was talking about toxic positivity earlier, 
you know, when I said about sometimes it's helpful to have people around us that are good for us. But we also have to remember that there will be times when we don't agree with people, but that doesn't mean they're not good for us. You know, so we have to kind of make those distinctions as well. So it's about people that are going to help us grow effectively, Mm. people that aren't just going to say yes all the time or they're not just going to agree with us all the time. Um, Because otherwise, as I say, we move into that space of it's my way or no way. And that's how we get into conflict with people. Um, But resilience also for me is about being able, like I say, to know when I'm not okay and having a toolkit to manage that. And it is very much about a vulnerability. You know, it's about giving permission to vulnerability to be able to say to someone, I'm not okay or I'm struggling um, and being able to reach into that. Resilience cannot be achieved in isolation. It is not something that you can achieve on your own. It is something that you need other people to help you with, that they have to be the right people. And like I say, by right people, I don't mean the yes people, you know, or the people that are going to tell you what you want to hear. Um, there, there needs to be an element of growth in that as well. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so how much does your book and your technique rely on people helping each other versus people just doing it themselves? Yeah, so I talk about, in Answers in the Dark, I talk about, for example, how we can help people that are grieving. Because like we were talking about earlier, I think one of the biggest mistakes we make when other people are grieving is we almost like move into comparison mode. Mm -hmm. So we instantly think, I know what you need in those moments, when actually we may have no idea. Um, or we go into that fixing mode. So one of the most common things that people do when someone else is going through a difficult time is they start a sentence with at least. So they'll say, you know, at least you've still got your health or at least you've still got your children or at least you're still young. You can always get remarried. And those things just really, you know, coming back to what we were saying earlier, they can just be so dismissive and minimizing because what they're telling that person is stop talking about it. Stop talking about your pain. Whereas if we can move into that space again of helping others by listening, by creating a safe container for them to talk about how they feel. One of the things about grief, um, and I talk about this in the book, is that it's not one emotion. It can be all emotions or it could be none of them. You know, so, for example, it's quite usual for people to tell me that they feel jealous when someone they love has died because, for example, if it's a a child that's died or if it's a a close family member that's died and they then see their neighbour is preparing their child's birthday party or they're preparing their mum's birthday party and they feel jealous that somebody else is getting to do the things with their loved one that they're not getting to do for themselves. Um, Yeah, and I, I think this is things, we don't talk about this. We don't talk about feelings like jealousy when someone's grieving because, like I said earlier, we associate it with a negative feeling. We think that's wrong or bad to feel that. And yet if that's what someone feels, that's what they feel. It's the same as relief. Some people feel relief when someone dies. And I think we need to be able to talk about that. You know, I think... For, for lots of different reasons, you know, it might be that they were really sick and we, you know, we feel relieved from that perspective. But I think this is one of the things that, you know, we, we need to talk about. Um, and so I talk about this in Answers in the Dark. I talk about the fact that we can help people by recognising that comparisons are unhealthy, 
that we can um, explore how a person is feeling without telling them what they need to do or how they need to fix it because grief can't be fixed you know if if you say to a grieving person what would help you right now the answer they're going to give you is I want my loved one back so there's there's there is nothing we can do in that moment to fix it in inverted commas um but we can be with them you know we can hold that space with them and we can ask if we can offer practical help. You know, we can offer to walk their dogs for them or do their weekly shopping for them. You know, those are the things that we can do. But I think we, you know, going back to what you were saying about interconnectedness, I think one of the dangers we have with that interconnectedness is that we automatically assume we know what someone needs because we've been through it. And yet, actually, we might not have any idea. So I think that's how we can help people is just recognizing that all grief is valid, but it's also unique. And so for each person, they'll experience it differently. I know for me, like when I've experienced like really bad grief, the only thing I wanted was somebody just to be there with me. I didn't really want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I kind of just wanted somebody, I just wanted company, somebody to, go hang out with, you know, and, and 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 do whatever felt like doing, whether it was just going to the movies or out to eat or, or whatever. It, it yeah. didn't necessarily mean that I, I didn't want to necessarily talk. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just wanted somebody to, to feel somebody near me. Yeah, yeah. And, Is that and normal? You know, absolutely normal. Um, one of the things I talk about actually in the book is that some people said exactly that, you know, that they might just want to go out to the movies. They might just not want to talk about what's happened. They might just want to experience life as it is at the moment um, without talking about it or getting into contact with it, you know, from that perspective. Um, but yeah, I think this is, you know, one of the most common things people say to me is actually, I don't want you to give me the answers. I don't want you to, you know, to kind of say, this is what you need. It's better to just, you know, sit with that person, hold that space with them, maybe offer, you know, do you want to go out for a walk? Do you want to go to the movies? Do you want to go to a a concert and listen to some music? You know, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. I think those are all healthy things to do because when a person is ready, they will get in touch with it. It's sometimes it's their hand is forced because, they haven't had permission to talk about it. And so it's showing up in other ways. There's something called inhibited grief. And inhibited grief is when our grief that we've pushed underground is basically showing itself as a physical illness. So we'll go to the doctors and they'll they'll do tests and the doctors will say there's, there's nothing wrong with them, medically speaking, but their grief is showing up as a form of illness. Um, and it's because for many people, their grief has been pushed down. They haven't been able to, just as you said, they haven't had that freedom of expression. They haven't had that opportunity to go to the movies or just not talk about it or just sit and listen. They haven't had that. They've almost been forced to just keep calm and carry on, you know, just to keep going no matter what, like we were talking about. And I, I think that's why, you know, it's it's so helpful to just ask a person, what do you need? How can I hold this space with you in a way that's helpful? what would be helpful for you right now? And if you say to me, let's go to the movies, right, let's go to the movies, you know, rather than me saying, well, I think you should or I think you need. Because who am I? You know, who am I to say what you need? Hmm. Interesting. You know, and that's another thing, too, is the delayed delay sometimes in grief. Because like, I know 
my own experience, like I lost my parents like five years ago, but then I went into sort of like this survival mode thing because I was the executor of their state. And I had all this stuff to do. And when once all that was finished, I moved, you know, and then after the move, I was sort of like still in survival mode because I had to figure out a new place. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until like years later where it's like all of a sudden I'm sitting by myself and I'm like, I don't have anybody left. Yeah. And, and and I'm done with the survival mode. Like, now what? Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think that's a great example of how we, we do pause grief, you know, especially when we have practicalities to deal with, like finding a new place to live. I think that's an example of how we pause our grief because we, we're having to kind of get on with the business of surviving in other ways, you know, whether that's getting a new job, moving home. Um, you, we see this, for example, when, um, you know, a husband or a wife dies, if there's been, uh, you know, a, a traditional role within the household where one of them always paid the bills and the other one, you know, took care of the home, for example, um, then we see that where those roles are almost reversed, you know, so suddenly the, you know, the person responsible for, for bringing home the money, as an example, is now suddenly the caregiver who has to provide all the care and the attention to the family. And so you're right, you know, for many people, their grief will get paused until a point where it's almost like the brain says, oh, it's safe enough now. You know, it's safe enough now for you to grieve. We've, we've got enough done now that we feel safe enough to grieve. Um, and that can take a long time. You know, like you said, it can be years. It doesn't even, um, you know, necessarily have to be days or weeks. And I talk about this in the book as well. I talk about the fact that there is no time frame mm-hmm. for grieving. You know, it takes as long as it takes. It's it's not a to-do list. You know, it's it's not something you wake up in the morning and think, oh, well, right, that's grief done. That's just not how it works. Um, and so I, I think that's another thing we need to keep in mind is, you know, it, it will take as long as it takes and it will show up. We we cannot grieve the wrong way, you know, in in that sense. Or or at least if I put it this way, we, we there is no right way to grieve. You know, there are definitely um, unhealthy ways to grieve. You know, let's let's be clear about that. There are definitely unhealthy coping mechanisms that might not um, be healthy for us in the long term. But certainly there is no right way to grieve. There is no prescription that a person can write to say this is what you need to do, because for everybody, it's going to be different. Right. You know, when I, when I went through that situation, my job has sent me to a grief counselor at my job. You know, and he went through like the five stages to grief and time. It was just complete bullshit. It, was, <laughs> it, it made me feel worse because I could not, I wasn't, it wasn't happening like that for me. So therefore I started to feel worse. I'm like, well, what's wrong with me? I'm not going through these five stages to grief in the prime, proper order. And I'm not it's hitting this six month timeline. It's like, yeah. I must be really screwed up because I'm, this isn't working for me. <laughs> No, you're not screwed up at all. And actually, I actually say in the um, in the book, I actually say there are no stages of grief. I Good. literally say that there, there are <laughs> no stages. Of grief. Yeah, and it is. And, it, and don't get me wrong, the person that is attributed as saying that that was never her intention. When Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about stages, she was talking about the stages of death and dying. She was talking about what she'd seen and observed in patients who'd been given a terminal diagnosis. So she was describing what she saw when people were going through the process of dying. She was not talking about bereavement in her original work. She was talking about the stages of dying, not the Mm -hmm. stages of grief. 
Um, and so this is why I'm, I'm always careful to say it's it's not even her fault, you know, that we talk about these stages of grief now because she didn't even mean it that way. Um, and so, you know, this is why we I do say that in Answers in the Dark. I say there are no stages of grief. It's the idea that grief is linear, you know, it, it like it, it's just, well, I'm going to use your word bullshit. You know, it's, uh-huh. it is. And and it's more along. Um, I often say grief is more like a roller coaster than it is a flight of stairs. Mm. So the idea that I go through, you know, I feel this and then I feel that and then I feel that and then I'm going to be fixed at the end of it. It's just not how it works. And of course, again, it just it leaves us open. You know, we think we're we're not grieving right. And it leaves us open to worry that we're not doing it right when actually we're probably doing it the best way that we can. Mm hmm. Well, the only way that we can, because each of us is different. Like, it's also, you know, with everything, every emotion, relationships, everything, you know, like, each of us is going to do things differently than another person. Mm. You know? Yeah, absolutely that. So the idea that there's one thing that's going to fix all, mm. you know, no, it's, it's, it's just not a thing. It's not a thing. It's like I say, there, there is no to-do list. There is no prescription. There is no, um, you know, cast iron list of things that I, you know, can say to someone, if you do this, you're going to be as right as rain in two weeks, two months, two years. You know, it just, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't. And actually, the idea that it should be that way, I think actually gets in the way of people's grief. It you know, the idea... Yeah, they think they're failing. They think yeah. they're getting it wrong. Um, and yet, actually, if we just say to people, no, do you know what? This is going to take as long as it takes. You're going to have good days and bad days. You're going to, there's going to be some really tricky stuff, you know, to kind of get to deal with, not just emotionally, but practically as well. Um, and actually, if we can just give people permission to feel what they feel without putting a time limit on it, you know, there is no expiry date. You know, there is no expiry date. But saying all of that, we do find our way forward. You know, we do find a way of navigating life without that physical person's presence. And that's why I was saying connection to them remains so important. If that's what we want, you know, if we want to remain connected to them somehow, then we can find ways to do that that feels healthy. One of the biggest problems that people will tell me about is that they weren't allowed to talk about their loved one anymore because their loved one had died. They, it was almost like they weren't even allowed to say their name anymore, as if it became this big secret that someone had died. And again, that is that we know now, we know now that the most helpful thing we can do is, is keep their memory alive, is story to tell, is talk about them. As long as that feels healthy, as long as that's what we want to do, then that can help us process our grief. But certainly being told we're not allowed to speak about them anymore, um, you know, unless, you know, there's a reason for that then it can be really helpful, uh, really unhelpful. Hmm. Um, wow, I had a question and I actually just forgot it. So, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I know, um, oh, I know what it was. You know, is one of the things that just sort of popped in my head as, as you're talking was, um, you know, because because your book is like you know about dreams, is when I was experiencing a lot of the grief and I was in that pain. All I wanted to do was sleep. Mm-hmm. I still do when I feel that. 
my first response is I want to go to sleep. Yeah, that's that's so interesting because one of the things I talk about in Answers in the Dark is that's my coping mechanism as well. So whenever I'm going through a difficult time, my natural instinct is to go to bed. It's my healing place. It's my healing sanctuary. And there's lots of different reasons for that. For some people, sleep is like time travel, right? You know, I can go to bed and wake up six hours later. It's like time travel. Um, but one of the things I talk about in the book, so I've kind of separated the book into three parts. The first part of the book, just explore some of these big myths around sleep. Um, you know, so I talk about this idea that everybody needs eight hours sleep. That's a myth. Everybody is different. Some people need six, some people need 10. We need more sleep when we're not okay. We need more sleep when we're poorly, you know, when we're sick. We need less sleep maybe as we get a little bit older. Teenagers need more sleep. Mm -hmm. No matter they're not being lazy, you know, they need more sleep because they're growing and developing. So I think that's one of the things I do in the first part of the book is kind of bust some of these myths around sleep. And then I move into talking about the sleep cycle repair kit. So I talk about how, um, you know, there are things that we can do to help us get a better night's sleep. Um, but, yeah, I talk in the book about how, for me, bed, my, you know, sleep has been a sanctuary for me. It's a place where I go to reset and recharge because emotional healing is just as important as physical healing. You know, it's it's important for us to do what our body needs in those moments. So if, if sleep is helpful, then maybe that's what we need in that moment. If it feels like it's starting to interrupt, you know, if it's getting in the way of life, then, yeah, you know, we may need to talk to someone about that. But certainly if it feels like a helpful thing to do, then I think we should make space for that. I think we should pro I think we should prioritize sleep all the time. You know, I think we should make it a priority all the time. So I think it is very much about, you know, what a person um, feels and of course for some people when they're going through a difficult time sleep is the one thing they want but just cannot get you know and and that's the paradox of sleep mm. it's something that we desperately want but at the same time it can feel like the enemy you know and I, and I think this is again one of the reasons I provide the sleep cycle repair kit is so that people can start to think about what is stopping them sleeping what might be getting in the way of that because again I think Speaking of myths, I think one of the things that we get into this habit of doing is when people can't sleep, we'll say, oh, is it because you're drinking too much coffee, for example, which, yeah, may, be, may well be one of the reasons. But actually, I, I talk about in the book about how I think sometimes the reason we can't sleep is not because of what we're doing, but because of what's happening to us during the day or what has happened to us mm. in the past. That's sometimes the reason we can't sleep. And I refer to it in the book as situational insomnia. So I think sometimes we also need to have those conversations, you know, about, well, what is the reason I can't sleep? Is it because I'm drinking too much coffee? Maybe it is. But is it because, uh, you know, when as soon as my head hits the pillow, my bed becomes this place that tells me everything that's wrong with my life or that's telling me, you know, it was reminding me of that argument I had 20 years ago where I wished I'd said something I didn't say. You know, because your mind just wants something to do. And if you don't give it something, it will find something. Mm -hmm. So what are some, like, for me, when I have difficulty sleeping, I will take, like, four Benadryl to knock myself out. Wow. And because um, most of the time I need to fall asleep as quickly as possible because I have to get up for work the next day. Yeah. Um, are there better ways to go to sleep other than using drugs or drugs a good way to use it? Go to sleep, like things uh, like Benadryl or, 
what is it? Um, I forget what the other one that's real popular is. It starts with an A. Yeah, so I, I mean, I know, I know. Over here, for example, we have medications which people will use if they're struggling to sleep. And some of those, don't get me wrong, some of those are really effective and they can be really helpful. And as long as they don't have sort of long-lasting or harmful effects, then you know, if they work, then some people will find them useful and keep using them. But it's important to remember that even prescribed medication that's used, that's given um, for people to to help them, so like tranquilizers, you know, forms of tranquilizers, effectively, mm-hmm. they're only ever really um, meant to be for short-term use you know they're only ever meant to be to give that person the opportunity to get some sleep so they can maybe figure out what it is that's stopping them sleeping because again if it's a form of situational insomnia then it might be that it's the situation or the circumstances that the person is in at that time that's stopping them from sleeping. Um, And it could even be a good thing, you know, like a new baby in the house. You know, that could be that's an example of how it's a good reason for not being able to sleep. But what you can't do is take four Benadryl when you've got a baby in the house. Right. You know, you can't you can't do that. So um, so we we do have to try and find other ways to, to, to maybe get some natural sleep when we can. That's not to say that medication isn't helpful for some people. It is if it's prescribed and it's like I say, it's not doing any harm. But um, one of the ways I approach it, um, I have a chapter in the book called Going Down the Plug Hole. And I refer to it that way because when we get into bed at night, it is often that is when our mind becomes really busy or noisy and it will, you know, start to just take us spiraling, you know, with thoughts that take us, as I call it, down the plug hole. And so that's one of the reasons why I talk about learning to manage the mind at night. So it might be with a breathing activity. It might be with giving your mind something to do, like a mantra or an affirmation. Um, or it might be during the day, actually dealing with your problems during the day that are showing up in the night um you know one of the quotes that I give in the book is an example of how we we tend to walk around our problems during the day almost like there's this big hole and we just walk around our problems during the day but of course we fall into that hole at night and so sometimes it can be helpful to reach out to people and and talk about what it is that's keeping us awake at night so I guess it depends on the person you know if you know that works for you and you find that healthy and helpful then you know do what feels right and healthy for you but I think for other people especially if they're a bit you know a bit nervous about using medication and stuff like that or they want other options I think certainly learning to manage the mind at night can be helpful Hmm. sleep cycle is a good one like for me my situation my, my work schedule Mm-hmm. Is I work um, what is it? Wednesday and Thursday. I work three in the afternoon to eleven at night. Then Friday, mm-hmm. Saturday, and Sunday, I work seven in the morning to three in the afternoon. Yeah. So when I make that switch from the three to eleven to the mm-hmm. seven to three, it messes me up, and I stay that, yeah. and I stay messed up all the way until I have my two days off, yeah. where I can get regular sleep and i hate it i absolutely hate it i feel like it's like ruining my life almost to the point where yeah. i'm begging my boss for a different shift i'm looking for another job it's like yeah. i'm almost at a point where i'm willing to do anything to, to 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 fix that because when i go home at night and by the time i take care of my gog and do everything 
and then I had to force myself to get maybe four hours sleep and then get back up and try to function in a normal routine for another yeah. three days. To, for me, at this age, it's impossible. It's yeah, impossible. I, hate like, it. I see younger people that are able to do it. But I'm, <laughs> I'm not. It, no, is, I hate is, it. is this like a physiological issue that I'm having? Is it real or is it just a mental thing that I can condition myself out of? So I I think, um, and I I do talk about this in Answers in the Dark, I talk about people who work shifts. um, And I'm thinking in this context, I'm also thinking of people like police officers, paramedics, um, you know, anyone that works in an ER or in any department, you know, um, where they're essentially working long shifts with very little breaks and then, you know, effectively going back to back with other types of shifts. So they'll do a set of earlies or they'll do a set of lates. And so one of the things, I mean, pretty much what you just said about if it is really starting to have a big impact on your life to the point where it's ruining it, then, yeah, I mean, I'm going to be one of the first people to say, if you can, then definitely start to look at alternatives for you. You know what that might look like, whether it's a different shift, different job, but doing what feels right for you, because at the end of the day, you know, this is your health and this is your well-being that we're we're kind of talking about. Um, but one of the things I talk about in Answers in the Dark is about the power of nap. Because I think one of the things that, um, again, we've kind of been conditioned to think is wrong in inverted commas, is that it's wrong to have a nap in the afternoon. You know, and I've, I've heard researchers say that, you know, we shouldn't have naps during the day. And that's really only the case if it affects how you sleep at night. You know, if you're having a nap in the day and it actually stops you going to sleep at night, then okay. But actually, people that work shifts um, and things like that, you know, it may well be that a power nap is is pretty much going to be a real help, you know, for them in terms of their health and well-being. So a power nap is effectively when you start to feel sleepy, if you can have a sleep at that point, then you maybe sleep for about 20 to 30 minutes set your alarm because otherwise you'll go into deep sleep if you keep going when you're talking about sleep cycles your sleep cycle is about 90 to 120 minutes depending on you as a person so if you set your alarm for sort of 20 to 30 minutes and have a power nap then that could actually be enough to give you that sort of sense of refresh and recharge I was talking to someone recently who was telling me that where they work They've actually extended their lunch breaks, which effectively is at night. You know, their lunch break is at night um, because of the hours that they work. But they've extended their lunch break to allow for a power nap. You know, they're actually allowing their employees to go and have a sleep if that's what they need to do. Because much better that they have a sleep, feel refreshed and recharged than run the risk of, you know, driving home absolutely exhausted or, you know, those kinds of things. So so I think, yeah, there are things that employers can do as well. So, you know, like you said, if you can speak to your employer and ask for a different shift or, you know, you can navigate it that way. But that's not always the case. And that's why I talk about it in Answers in the Dark That um, because I was thinking when I wrote the book, I was think- thinking specifically of, you know, people that work shifts in warehouses or, you know, um, statutory services like police officers, paramedics, because they don't get a choice. You know, they, they don't get a choice in this. So um, that's where coming up with some of these alternatives can be helpful and, and, and really kind of embracing the power of a nap. Does age change it? Is it easier for young people to do those crazy shifts than it is for somebody who's over 50? 
I, do you know what? Again, I think everybody is different. I know some people, when I speak to them when they're older, they find naps a lot easier than others. Um, but I equally know teenagers that could fall asleep, you, you know, anywhere, you know, they could fall asleep standing up. So I think, again, it's it's different. I, You know, I'm not going to say that this group of people gets better to sleep than others um, or find naps easier than others. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think, I definitely think certainly teenagers um, like I say, they'll fall asleep standing up. Um, but that's again because they've got a lot going on in their bodies. Whereas as we get older, we're we're just kind of navigating life a different way. And it will depend how busy we are as well. You know, the busier we are, the more likely we are going to need to rest and recharge. So it makes sense the busier we are. But I think it's also important, you know, some people that aren't busy, they will go to bed because they're bored. Yes, you know, I think that's I'll do that too. Yeah, you know, they're bored, so they'll go to bed. And I, I think, again, it's it's really about kind of asking yourself the question, how do I feel about that? You know, when I wake up, do I feel better? Do I feel not so good? Um, so it's, it's about seeing the benefit of doing it. If there's benefit to doing it and it helps you feel better, then I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> hmm. um, is it true that the body does not need sleep, but the brain does? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I would say, and this is from from what you were talking about earlier about interconnected, I think that the brain and the body are connected. So I think the mind and the body, they are not two distinct separate things. And I think that we know, for example, that lack of sleep affects our immune system. So I'm going to get, if I'm not sleeping well, I'm going to get every cough, cold virus that's going around. In the same way, we know that dreaming sleep is what helps us to store memory. So people that don't get a good night's sleep can be quite forgetful. They have quite poor memories. Um, you know, and I'm talking about over time. I'm not talking about just, you know, occasional poor night's sleep or periods of poor sleep. I'm talking about consistently over time, people that have periods of poor sleep, um, they might find that they become quite forgetful. So personally, I think that the mind and body are connected. I think that lack of sleep will affect the body from the physical perspective, like our immune system. But I also think potentially it affects the brain and the mind from the context of being able to remember things. So I, I think they're connected. Hmm. So before we wrap this up, like what what is the most important message that you're trying to get across in your book about grief and sleep? For me, it's about starting a conversation. I think one of the things that we've done as a society is, and again, I'm, I'm speaking from a Western perspective at this point, I think one of the things that we've done is we've kind of put almost like all of our eggs in one basket and said, you know, everybody needs eight hours sleep. We have to go to bed at 10 o'clock every night. We have to, it's unnatural to wake up at night, you know, all these kinds of things. And this information is out there. You know, people are being told this. From my perspective, I'm saying, what if that's not the case? You know, what if actually, instead of eight hours sleep, everybody is different? What if actually there isn't a specific bedtime as such? What if it's about going to bed when you feel sleepy? And what if it is natural to wake up in the middle of the night? What if it is actually a part of our survival mechanism um, occasionally to wake up in the night to, to check out what's going on in the world? So I think this one of the things I try to do with the book is start a conversation and certainly starting to think about how grief is showing up for people because you can almost guarantee if someone is going through a difficult time their sleep is going to be affected so it's really about giving ourselves permission 
to kind of open these conversations and think about how might nighttime being presenting me with some of the answers I need. And that's why the book's called Answers in the Dark. Awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on today and talking with me. And also, before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your book? So the book can be found, it has its own website, which is answersinthedark.com. Um, but they can also find me at delphiellis.com. That's where my website is. And they can find out a bit more about me. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on. It was a pleasure talking with you today. And I'll post a link to your websites and notes to this episode. And hang on for one moment while I play the outro. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. listen to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable.